You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. great to be with you. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm going to be uh, preaching from Hebrews chapter 1. I invite you to turn there if you're not there already, the text that Joy just read. And uh, before we dive in, you know, uh, one of the joys of being a part of a church plant that grows is seeing all these new people come in. And uh, a cool experience that I've had, and maybe you've had too, as you've seen new folks join our church family, is kind of get shocked at like what some of these people do and how much influence they have in the city. Like I met, uh, Sherry and I had, went out on um, Monday night and we came home and found out the woman that was babysitting our kids is one of the, like, the designers of clothes and Under Armour. Like, that's awesome. I was a little shocked. Like, wow, you, you're watching our kids and you're designing clothes and your job that I wear, you know, trying to hook me up with that promo code. It just—it was a cool experience. Like I didn't know you did that. And then we were talking about someone else who goes to our church, a guy named Sammy. You might have seen him. He wears glasses. He serves in City Kids. If you have kids, he's probably played with your kids. Kind of find out he's a, a comedian on the side. He does stand-up comedy. I was like, that Sammy. He has like on his cover photo is um, Hassan Minaj, like the famous comedian. Like he—he's talking to Hassan Minaj. Like I, I had no idea a guy who goes to our church like does comedy. Um, go ask him to tell you a joke. Maybe you laugh. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't say he was good. I'm just saying he's a comedian. Just interesting to me, you know. Uh, I, there's somebody who's going to our church who works for the Ravens, is a scout for the Ravens. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, we got to sign Lamar. Let's go. Come on. Like, it's just crazy. You meet somebody, and you're like, I had no idea you did that. It's kind of a fun experience. Uh, what's even a cooler experience, as I've, as I've seen in our church, is not just being surprised and shocked at what someone does for a living, but being surprised in, by who they are. You ever have that experience, right? Like you meet somebody and you're like, wow, that person's really joyful. And you get to know them and you're like, they really are actually that joyful. Like that wasn't just a one-time thing. You know, I've had that so many times in our church. Like Isaac is really generous. And then we go out to eat and I have to like punch him not to pay for the meal. Like you are really that generous. Uh, Jen, my assistant, like she really is that kind all the time. Like I I don't think you're a human like the rest of us. Maybe you've had that experience, right? Like you get surprised, almost shocked at what someone does and maybe more importantly, who they are. And that reality is never more true than when you meet Jesus. Because you will be baffled at what he has done and what he does. And you'll be even more baffled by who he is. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 wants to shock us with the, the extraordinary qualities of Jesus Christ. And I think one thing that we do oftentimes in church and in the Christian world is we, we are quick to go to what Jesus has done, the jobs he has, the things he's accomplished, and we zoom past and forget to dwell on who he is, first of all. And the writer of Hebrews wants to put first things first and allow us to dwell on the person of Jesus Christ. Like, at his core, who is he? What is he like? In a way that should baffle us. The, the purpose of this entire, ta- chap- entire chapter is really just to exalt in the person of Christ. And I, I just want to say to you, 
if you're here and you're not a Christian, Islam will offer you a book. Buddhism offers you a lifestyle. Atheism offers you a debate. Kenton probably offers you a job description and a natty bow. But Christianity offers you a person. Jesus. Christianity is at its core Christ. Just Him. Knowing Him, walking with Him, believing in Him. And so the primary act of the Christian is not actually to do anything, but simply just to gaze at Him and revel in what He has already done. I love the way John Newton says it. He says, if the Christian life is Christ, then looking to Him is the great duty of the Christian life. That's pretty easy. Sounds easy, right? Well, it's because it is. Looking to Jesus marks the beginning of the Christian life. Looking to Jesus is the end goal of the Christian life. And looking to Jesus is a daily privilege of the Christian life. By beholding Christ, we are gradually formed in the resemblance of whom, whom we see, admire, and love. And so that's my hope for you. If you're not a Christian, that you would meet this Jesus and be astounded at who he is. And if you are a Christian, you're wrestling with sin or selfishness or some struggle, that just by looking at Christ, he would melt your heart and change you. Because just by getting to know him, you become a different person. And so I want to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. And I just really, honestly, I just want to say this to you before we jump in. We're covering four verses, four short verses this morning. I want to promise you that if you will understand and believe these four verses, it will honestly change your life. If you really believe what the Word of God says in these four verses, you will never be the same again. And I just want to pray that the Spirit of God would help us understand and soak these truths in our heart. Would you pray with me that that would happen? Lord Jesus, shock us with what you've done this morning. Blow us away even more with who you are. May we see the, the astounding mountainous realities of Hebrews 1, not just in the text, but in our own hearts, in our own minds, as we as we consider you, may, it, may the realities of who you are shape how we approach our lives. Would you do something supernatural in this time as we just unveil what you say about yourself? Make this church different. Make these people different. Because we're with you. We're with the King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see four baffling truths in these three verses. And these four truths are going to help us see why Christmas is such a big deal. First truth we see is that Jesus Christ is the final word. Look at verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Now, the first astounding claim of Hebrews 1 is that God has spoken through the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to hear God's voice, listen to Jesus. That's often how you get to know somebody, right? You talk to them. You have a conversation. You become more intimate the more you talk to them. Well, God's like, I want to know you and I want you to know me. And that's going to happen through you talking with Jesus. You listening to him and you talking to him. Jesus is God coming down to speak to you. 
And if you notice, I mean, this is just wild. Look at verse 3. Not only is God speaking through the person of Jesus Christ, it says that Jesus, the Son, look at this, is the exact imprint of God's nature. Okay, that's quite a claim. The exact imprint of His nature. The word imprint is literally the Greek word character. So essentially what's being said here is that Jesus isn't God coming to give us jeopardy facts about life so we can know more about God. Jesus is the revelation of God to us. If you want to know what God at His very essence is like, Jesus is the revelation of that reality. See Him with the orphan. See Him with the prostitute. See Him with the religious leader. See Him alone praying. See Him preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. That is God speaking, God's character revealed to us. God wants you to know what He's like. He's not hiding it, and He's revealed it in the person of Jesus. You know, it's very easy in the Christian life to know facts about God, or even facts about Jesus, to know doctrines, right? Like, I know what the incarnation is. I know what substitutionary atonement is. I know what predestination is and a hundred other vital doctrinal truths. But the problem is, is that that is not, in essence, what a Christian is. The religious leaders knew all the religious doctrines and facts. If you just know doctrines and facts about God, it just makes you a, a Christian Jeopardy cha- champion. It doesn't make you a Christian. You see, the catalyst for radical change in your heart and your life, the change you've always longed for, is by discovering the heart of Jesus. And seeing His heart for you changes your heart into one that looks like His. If you want to know God and be like God, come to Jesus and you'll see it and you'll feel the change. That's what's being said here. Here's what I mean. Uh, I can tell you a lot of facts about my wonderful wife who's sitting right there, Sherry, right? I can tell you her height. I can tell you her weight. Uh, I'm not going to. She has a great weight, sweetheart, perfect weight. I can tell you her eye color. I can tell you Sherry's hobbies. I can can just explain to you that her feet are ice cold every every day, every night. I can tell you her Enneagram number and her Myers-Briggs personality. I can tell you so many, like, Jeopardy facts about Sherry. But that won't help you get the essence of who she is. And you won't be changed and blessed by her if I just talk to you about her and you know things about her. But how do I communicate to you who she is? How do I explain to you and help you feel what I feel? How do I help you to see the way, like she wipes our kids' tears away when she's at wit's end, when she feels like she's about to cry, she just cleaned the room and they made the room messy again, the laundry and dishes are piled up, dinner hasn't even started yet, she hasn't started cooking it, and she feels like she's going to lose it, but she's comforting her kids. How do I communicate that level of tenderness and care to you? How do I communicate to you, like the way, like this week when I was like, Honey, I'm at my wit's end with toddlers. I can't be around another toddler for a minute right now. And she's like, you just go and be away for a little bit. How do I communicate that kind of care to you? How do I communicate to you the way that she gazes at me across the dinner table at our favorite restaurant? That, that's that, that look 
that communicates that no matter who leaves me, she never will. And the, the level of security that we have, we've made it through hundreds of conversations and arguments safely. I cannot, through facts, help you feel all I feel. All I can do is introduce this embodied person to you and say, let her bless you with who she is. And what Hebrews 1 is saying is, God is like, let me bless you with who I am. Jesus is God's glance across the dinner table at your favorite restaurant to you. Jesus is the the revelation of everything God is for you. Do you know him? Are you relating to him? Because he's pursuing you with himself. Now, not only is Jesus God's word to us, God's exact imprint, his revelation, his character to us, you notice the text says it's Jesus is God's final word. Not just a word, but the word. Verse 1 says, you know, long ago in the past, and many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Essentially, like in the past, God spoke the Greek word polytropos, which means in pieces, you know, kind of like you imagine these little pieces of a puzzle. God kind of spoke in little pieces in the past, you know, through the narratives of Abraham, through the songs of David, through the Proverbs of Solomon, through the law of Moses. God spoke in these pieces, right? But in these last days, how does he speak? Through his son, the final sufficient way. You see, the reason that Christmas is so significant, so special, because something final has come. Someone final has come on Christmas morning, and his name is Jesus. He's God's final word. What does this mean? It means everything that God has said in the past, particularly in the Old Testament, you know, the first half of your Bible, every single verse is an arrow pointing to him. Jesus is the meta-narrative of the scriptures. He's the center of it. Jesus is the climax of all that God has said and done throughout redemptive history. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that Jesus is where all the promises of God find their yes. In Luke 24, Jesus pulls his disciples aside on the Maus Road and says, Hey, you know your entire Bible? Do you know all of it points to me? And what Hebrews 1 is essentially saying is, Jesus is not a piece of the puzzle. He's not a word for us. He is the final word. Jesus doesn't show up on the scene in a barn in in Bethlehem for the first time. Jesus' intervention into history did not begin in Matthew chapter 1 at the incarnation. It began in Genesis chapter 1 at the dawn of creation. For centuries before Bethlehem, Jesus has been the force weaving together redemptive history. And the entire Old Testament is pointing to him, the final word. Every Bible character you read about, every narrative, every poem, every proverb, every psalm, every verse in the Old Testament finds its end in Jesus Christ, God's final word. You just read your Bible, you see that Jesus is the final Adam who instead of bestowing to us condemnation and guilt because of his disobedience, imputes to us his righteousness because of his obedience. Jesus is the final word of Noah, who becomes the ark that shelters us from the waters of God's just wrath. 
Jesus is the final word of Abraham, who becomes the father of many nations and through whom all the peoples of the earth are blessed. Jesus is the final word of Moses and Joshua, who breaks the chains of our slavery to sin and leads us into the promised land, the new heavens and earth. Jesus is the final word of Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives his brothers who betrayed him and uses his power not to condemn them, but to save them. Jesus is the final word of Solomon, who doesn't just build a temple, he becomes the glorious temple in which sinners can come and be purified and dwell with God forever. Jesus is the final word of the Proverbs 31 woman, who seeks the good of her family and uses her life to provide for those under her care. Jesus is the final word of the psalmist, because he destroys all of our enemies, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, he shepherds us through the valley of the shadow of death into the pastures that lead us to still waters. Jesus is the final Passover lamb, he's the final sacrifice, he's the final Sabbath, he's the final prophet, priest, king. You see, the Bible has and always will be about the final word of God, Jesus Christ. And the Bible will not make sense to you until you see every part of the picture pointing to the greater picture, the final word, Jesus. And if all of redemptive history... If all the Bible points to the final word of God, Jesus Christ, can I ask you, is he the final word in your life? Does he have authority? Does he have the final say in whatever you do? I, uh, in Baltimore City, I often hear people say, I, I believe in God, or I think I believe in God, but I can't believe in a God who judges sinners and sends them to hell. You ever hear an unbeliever or even a believer say that? You ever hear somebody say, I believe in God, but I cannot believe in a God who has authority over my sex life, who tells me who I can and cannot sleep with, who tells me what my role as a man or my role as a woman is supposed to be, who has an opinion on homosexuality. I can't believe in a God who, who says or believes that. So there are things in the Bible you hear people in the city say that I do believe in, I love that part about Jesus, but there's some things in this book I just can't agree with or follow. And my follow-up question to somebody who's in that, maybe, maybe you're there this morning, I'm really glad you're here. My follow-up question to you, if you're like, I love this part of the Bible, but I don't love this part of the Bible, is how will this God of yours ever contradict or challenge you? How will this God of yours ever cross your will? How will he ever tell you anything you don't want to hear? And the answer is, if you don't have a God that contradicts you, that, that even goes against what you want, do you have a real God? Does God ever lead you to do something you naturally, instinct, instinctively disagree with? Or do you have a God that's a Stepford wife? A God that's an appliance. You turn the knobs and he does what you say. A God that's happy in the kitchen, cooking up whatever you order. If, if God can't disagree with you, contradict you, command you even, then wouldn't that make you God and not him? I mean, the very nature of a relationship is being willing to submit to the will of someone else. If you're not at some point willing to submit to the will of someone else, then you don't have a relationship. You have a dictatorship. And if God never disagrees with you and you submit to his will, do you honestly, do you really have a relationship with him? 
or a dictatorship over him? Have you usurped his role in your life as Lord? And what I want you to understand is God is only God in your life if you're willing to accept the authority of his word. If you're willing to submit yourself under his final word. And unless you're willing to accept the things God says that you do not like, then you cannot have an intimate personal relationship with him. You're really just using him to meet whatever need you have right now. Jesus Christ is the final word, Hebrews 1 says. May he be the final word of our hearts and our lives. You thought that was crazy. Wait till you get this next verse, man. Second point, he's the king of the universe. It sounds extreme. I'm not even getting close to how extreme this is. Hebrews 1, 2 says, Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Talking about Jesus. Through whom also he created the world. And, verse 3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Three astounding claims about the person of Jesus in these few verses. Number one, Jesus owns the universe. Number two, Jesus created the universe. Number three, Jesus upholds the universe. Man, I... (laughs) If you're bored by this part, I don't know what to do for you, because this is wild. Jesus owns the universe, it says. He is the heir of all things, Hebrews 1 says. Now, in, the, in a first century Jewish culture, to, to be the heir is a significant deal. To be the firstborn son means you led the family. It means you owned everything. Essentially, this text is saying Jesus is the firstborn son or the heir of the cosmos. It, it's all his, man. You know, one popular rapper, the way he put it is, the devil runs the playground, but God owns the building. Well, Hebrews 1 says, God owns the playground and the building. It's all his. And if you're a Christian, that's really good news, isn't it? Because Jesus made a lot of promises to his people, right? He said, if you give up your treasure on earth, you'll receive way more treasure in heaven. He said, if you are going through tough times, Romans 8, I'll work all the evil in your life to an eternal good. He says, if you've been abandoned by your mother, father, sister, brothers, friends for your faith, I won't abandon you. He is the heir of all things. And if he really is the heir of all things, all those promises he's made to you, Christian, he'll come through on them when he comes back, won't he? That's some good news if you are a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're an enemy of God, him being the owner of all things isn't great news for you because he'll come back as a ruler and a judge. Now, he doesn't just own the universe. It says he created the universe through whom also he created the world. Now, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're an atheist, and I'm... We love when unbelievers come into our service. If you're here and you're not a Christian or even a believer in God, I'm so thankful you're here. And can I just say to you that you think you have no faith, but the reality is that you do have a faith. You live a life of faith, just faith in something different than what we believe in. You see, if you're an atheist, you have faith that billions of years ago, the Big Bang was the founding force of the universe. Boom, explosion that led to the creation of the cosmos, and then evolution eventually developed into where we are today. And the reason that belief requires faith is because scientists still have no answer as to where the matter required to spark the Big Bang came from. 
And so uh, even the smartest atheist doesn't have an answer to where was the matter required to start the Big Bang originate from? You have a universe that just popped into existence. And this is known in apologetics as the cosmological argument. It's an Aristotelian defense for the existence of God. Essentially, the way it goes is everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause. And the author of Hebrews says, we have the cause, we know it is, his name is Jesus. And if you're here, you're not Christian, you're an atheist, you have no answer to, you've you got some speculative theories, maybe multiverse, maybe an aliens, I don't know. But you seem really content with the idea of not knowing. You have faith just in something different. Glenn Scrivener says, I love the way he says this, he says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Choose what you're going to have faith in. Because you can't have a life without believing something. And if you're here and you're, you're an atheist... I just want to appeal to you and say, you're going to go to sleep tonight without an answer, without security. And if you're a Christian, you can go to sleep tonight knowing the creator of the universe says, he is in my hand, she's in my hand, and no one will take them from me. Jesus is the heir of the cosmos, he's the creator of the cosmos, and then finally he's the sustainer of the cosmos. He upholds it, it says, with the word of his power, which I think is an amazing claim, right? Like Jesus doesn't need his arms to hold the universe up, he doesn't need his angels, his words will do the trick. He just speaks and boom, it happens. You guys know how big the universe is, right? This is saying that he holds it with his words. Let's help understand the reality of what is being claimed here. You know, the distance from the earth to the sun is 92 million miles. Just you know, 92 million casual miles. Hypothetically, if the earth to the sun's distance, which is 92 million miles, was equivalent to the thickness of this sheet of paper, right, which is, I don't know, like 0.1 centimeters, if that, if the distance from the earth to the sun was the thickness of this sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the next closest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. That's the closest star. If the distance from the earth to the sun was the thickness of this sheet of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be the length of a stack of papers from here to Raleigh, North Carolina. That's 310 miles of papers equivalent of the distance from the earth to the sun. And astronomers claim that our galaxy and its diameter is a tiny speck, a piece of dust in the infinite number of galaxies in the, in the cosmos. And if there is a being that holds together all of that by his words. Is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? That's why John Piper says, God made man small and the universe big 
to say something about himself. And so, Jesus is the king of the universe. Is he the king of your life? And this text is really saying, like, friend, you've got to be extreme if you believe this. Jesus forces you to be extreme. I mean, he's either the king of everything and your life, or he's an enemy ruler trying to usurp the tiny little self-made throne you've put in your heart. There's no middle option. You don't get to say, yeah, he's the ruler of everything, and he gets some of my life and not these parts. There's no in-between between extremes. And how astounding is it, this, this, the glory of Christmas, right? That the creator of the cosmos, the heir of the cosmos, the sustainer of the cosmos came to earth in flesh like us. And he didn't come to rule, to command, to, to bring the hammer down. He chose to be birthed in a manger covered in blood and dirt. And on that Christmas morning, his manger held something bigger than the entire universe. And he came to live and to die for those he loved, us. That's why Christmas is so crazy. He owns the universe, he created the universe, he upholds the universe, and he died for it. Jesus truly is different. Can I ask you, like, honestly, we're talking about all these verses, like, do you believe this? Like, do you actually think this is true? Because if you do, it, I feel like it should change everything about how we live. Don't you? I mean, think about Think about how much less you would worry if you really believed this. Yeah, there's a king over the universe. He made it all. He holds it together. He's that powerful, and he loves me. Enough to come to the earth to die for me. What do I have to worry about if he's in control of everything? I mean, wouldn't every moment of anxiety and worry almost be an insult either to his power or to his love for you? Because you're just essentially saying to him when you worry, God, I don't trust you to get my future right. I mean, if you really believe this, if I really believe this, we should have this like gospel chill, right? Like, yeah, I'm on the team of the guy who breathed out everything. And he loves me enough to make me his brother. Yeah, I'm good if the bills seem high this month, or the business isn't working out, our relationship is a little rocky, our work is struggling. I'm on his team. I mean, think about, honestly, think about how much you would pray more if you really believe this is who you're praying to. Like, while you're talking to him, he's literally sustaining the sun. And what I say influences what he does. How much more would you pray if you really believe that? Think about how much less you would complain if you really believe this, right? Like, he controls every detail of my life, from whether I get a splinter in my hand to how much money or lack of money is in my bank account. And he loves me, and everything that is happening is under his sovereign control. Really, if I saw it that way, my complaining would be an affront to him, wouldn't it? 
To live with a defeated, complaining spirit would just say, God, you got my future wrong, or you don't really love me. I just think the reality is we just don't believe this stuff, man. Think about how thankful we would be if we really believed this. Like God is holding my heart pumping together. Every breath is Him allowing it to happen. I have so much more to be thankful for, don't I? He, like, he's giving this to me as a gift. And all my problems are the problems that people in, in other areas of the world dream about having. I'd be a lot more thankful. So this is just a, a challenge to us, like, challenge to myself. Do I believe the Bible? Do I believe that he really is the final word of God and the king of the universe who died for me and loves me? Third point. I'm going to breeze as quickly as I can through this one. that He's the radiance of God's glory. Jesus wasn't astounding enough for you. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now you read that and you're like, okay, cool. What next? What does that mean? Let me help give you some understanding of what this is saying. In the Old Testament, when Moses begins to lead the children of Israel out of slavery from the nation of Egypt, and then the Egyptian army chases after the, the Israelites, there's this pillar of, of fire, or this cloud of glory that prevents the, the Egyptian army from pursuing the Israelites. Like this is this, this cloud powerful enough to, to withhold them. And then we find out later on in the scriptures that this pillar of or the fire and this cloud of glory leads the Israelites through the wilderness. And then it finally just, it, it hangs over Mount Sinai and thunder and lightning descend upon this mountain as the children of Israel sit at its foot. And the text says that not even, uh, no one could touch the mountain because the power of that glory cloud over Mount Sinai was so powerful, so glorious. And later on when the temple is dedicated under King Solomon, we find that this pillar of fire and this cloud of glory comes down to the temple and everyone in the temple and around it fall on their face and cannot stand up because it is that weighty and that powerful, this glory cloud. What is that? We see it all over the Old Testament. What is this pillar of fire, this cloud? It's the manifestation of the glory of God. It's God in a form that the Israelites could see. It's God in a form that expressed His power and His brilliance and His beauty and His overwhelming, shattering importance. And what we're being told in Hebrews 1.3 is that this God, depicted by this pillar of fire and cloud of glory that just decimated nations and protected Israel and scared Israel, is now manifest in its ultimate expression in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that glory in human form. Notice that word, exact. He is the exact, ultimate, unsurpassable form in which God appears. And you, you can't even gaze at the glory of the sun without burning your eyes out. How in the world can you look at the glory of God, the one who holds this little star, and yet what we're being told is that God's glory 
is touchable, seeable. It's God's glory in a form you can have dinner with. It's God's glory you can have a laugh with. You can high-five. You can invite into your heart. This is God's glory in a form where he can come into your life and change you into his likeness, to make you into the person you always dreamed about being, the transformation you've yearned for for years. It can happen this way. It's the unsurpassable, highest, best form that God comes to us, and it's in human form in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the text says. Now, there's a personal implication to these astounding statements that we need to consider just for a moment. You know, the book of Hebrews was written to a culture similar to ours, in a state similar to ours. These Hebrews who were reading this original letter lived in a pluralistic urban society that worshipped various amounts of gods and had tons of different religions, much like our city. It was not a culturally or religiously homogeneous society. And so, for the author of Hebrews to make these claims about Jesus' uniqueness, that Jesus, you know, is the final word, he has authority over everything, that he created, sustains, and holds together the universe, that's quite a claim, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, and that he is exclusively the only one we can go to, that would be very, very difficult to hear in a first century society like the ones reading this. In the same way, it's hard for people in our society to hear these things and believe them. So what does the writer of the book of Hebrews say to these readers that are in this pluralistic, secularistic situation? What he's actually saying is, don't you dare take your eyes off these truths. Hold to them for dear life. Look at the first verse. How much clearer can it be? The first verse is essentially saying, You can't put Jesus on the shelf of your life. You can't put him next to all the other prophets and sages and religious teachers that have existed throughout history. He will not stay on that shelf. He's either way above them or way below them because of the nature of his claims. What do I mean by that? When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus and you listen to what he says, it is just astounding, not so much the direct claims of Christ, but it's really the indirect claims of Christ that will astound you. There's a place, you know, in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is talking to his disciples about demon possession, popular topic, and they're talking about people they saw that had demons. And you know what Jesus says? He says, just randomly, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Okay. But you really think about that. What? Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples about demon possession, and he says, yeah, I saw Lucifer before the creation of the material universe go bad, and he fell down from heaven. That was quite a sight. I mean, think about that claim. In Matthew 23, 34, Jesus says, I keep sending you guys prophets and wise men and teachers, and you keep killing them. What? Notice Jesus doesn't say, you know, I am one of the wise men, I am one of the prophets, I am one of the teachers, and God sent me to you. No, he says, I am the force behind the universe that is sending all these prophets and wise men and teachers, and you keep killing them. What? I mean, if you read any of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, they're always getting a word from the Lord, and at the end of what they say, they always say what? 
Thus saith the Lord. You know, here's the word, here's the prophecy. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Do you notice in the Gospels, Jesus never stoops so low to say that? Never does Jesus say, thus saith the Lord. Never. All Jesus ever says is, truly, truly, I say unto you. Jesus Christ's consciousness of being the transcendent, uncreated, beginningless God of the universe, it permeates everything he says and does. It's on every page if you read it. Such that you cannot prostitute his teachings on social justice or ethics or love, as good as they are, and at the same time ignore his claims of deity on your life. His claims of lordship on your life. He can't be put on a shelf. He can't be used for your purposes. He's either way above everything else or way below it. I love the way scholar N.T. Wright says it. He says it so well. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it's a sham, it's nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in this shallow world in between those two truths, our claims. That's exactly right. Most people cannot cope with the extremities of Jesus. Because if you're going to have an, even a shred of intellectual, spiritual, moral, or emotional integrity, you either need to call him Lord over everything, including you, or you need to call him for what he is, a manipulative liar that is the most evil man in, the, in human history. There's no in-between. Either it's a sham and he's a fake, or he really is the king of the universe. And I don't know how you read the Gospels. I don't know how you experience the person of Jesus and see him loving the unlovable, seeing him washing the feet of his disciples, seeing him change civilization, seeing him change your life and my life and say, that's a sham. That's a lie. He's evil. I don't know how you can come to that. And so I think our only logical conclusion is to go to him and say, you really are who you said you were. The final word of God. The king of the universe the radiance of God's glory, and if all that is true, then you have to throw everything in your life at his feet and say, command me. I'm yours. There's nothing in the middle. There's no other position in regards to him that has any integrity at all. You need to either love him or hate him. And the sad reality, especially in our American culture, Almost no one can cope with the extremes of those two solutions or, or claims. So we settle for what N.T. Wright calls the shallow middle. It has no intellectual or moral or philosophical integrity at all. Let's not be a church that does that. And I would say let's be a people who believe he is who we said he was and live in reality of that. Here's the good news as we hit our last point. 
The reality that Jesus Christ is the final word, he is the king of the universe, he is the radiance of God's glory. You know, all those claims, none of that in and of itself is good news. Because Jesus can be the final word of God, he can be the king of the universe, he can be the radiance of God's glory, and that can actually be very bad news for us because we are enemies of Jesus. We are sinners who have tarnished his creation. We have usurped his role of Lord and made ourselves Lord. And so him returning as all those things can actually mean judgment for us, condemnation for us, fear for us. Here's the good news for all of us who are sinners this morning, which is everyone. Verse 3 at the end. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The good news of Christmas is not just that the final word, the radiance of glory, the king of the universe became human. It's that the, the God of the universe became human to be the savior of sinners. Christmas means God loves sinful people. He made purification for sins, it says. That tense means he and no one else did it. Just him purified your sins. And if you're new to Christianity, I need you to understand, Christianity is not Jesus tossing a life raft to drowning people saying, you got it, I'm on your team. Christianity is Jesus, the final word, the king of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, diving deep into the depths of the oceans of our sin and lifting up our helpless corpses to the safety of God's shore and breathing new life into dead people, and it's only because of Him that we are alive. Christianity is not self-help. Here you go. It's, I need help. Help me, Jesus. And the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity is that we are declared righteous, purified before God, not once we begin to get our act together. We become purified before God the moment we collapse and give up on our own and fall into His arms and honestly acknowledge we will never get it together on our own. We're too wicked. But He came to be what we could not. And the good news here is that he didn't just purify our sins. It says right after that, after he purified us, he sat down. I don't know about you, when I have a long day at work, I like to sit down because the work is what? Finished. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in the majesty of the heavens because there is nothing left to do. But look at him. It's done. Christian, you're here this morning. It is finished, he says. That's last words. If you're not a Christian, come and receive the finished purification of your sins through Christ. And all there is left to do for us is to just marvel in his majesty. Just say, wow, you really are the final word of God. Wow, you really do control the universe. You're the heir of the cosmos. Wow, you are the exact imprint of the glory of God in your mind, and I'm yours. That's all we have left to do. And he changes us as we look at him. John Owen says, the more you see the glory of Christ, the more the beauties of this world wither in your eyes and you become crucified to this world. 
By gazing at the glory of Jesus, sin becomes bitter and Christ becomes sweet and life makes sense again. And so that's my invitation to you, unbeliever. Look at him and let him purify you. And that's my invitation to you, believer. We have the same prescription. Look at him. And that's such good news for Christmas because, you know, I always find December 26th to be a really depressing day because all the lights come down, all the gifts have already been opened, all the meals have already been had, and we're left with the emptiness knowing all these celebratory things are finished. But when you really know what Christmas is all about, that the thing we most celebrate is this king. December 26th is just as glorious as December 25th because I can still look at him on both days. I want to invite you to receive the gift of this Jesus. The one who held the universe together as it crucified him. Let's go to him this morning. Let's worship him. Let's be like him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we recognize we are so quick to turn from you in our sin, and we are simultaneously so quick to try and heal ourselves through our good works, through our acts of our own uh, morality, generosity, uh, virtue. We try and earn your righteousness ourselves. And Lord, we just come to you honestly admitting that we are broken. Sinners drowning, having drowned in our ocean of our own sin. We're helpless. And God, you saw our helplessness. You saw our wickedness. In your power and glory, you still came. To be born amongst sheep. And horses and straw and blood and dirt. And you went even lower than that to wash feet. And you went even lower than that to have your hands and feet nailed to a cross. And you went even lower than that bearing the wrath we deserved on that cross. And then you went even lower than that being buried dead in a grave. And we rejoice that that grave could not contain you that it just burst forth with your glory and ended this unending struggle for us of trying to earn our own righteousness before you. We thank you that you were all these things and you purified us of our sin and we get to sit down today like you sit down right now. Help us, Lord, if we're not believers here, help us to believe that. And if we are, help us to believe that and may it change us this morning. And every day thereafter, beyond the Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.